you can actually use assisted GPS with these devices because you've got not only a link to four different satellite systems that are feeding the GPS, you've also got three and four G telco towers. You're listening to the Rotary Wing Show, a show for helicopter aircrew by helicopter aircrew. Each episode, we travel the world to hear from the people that fly and support helicopters to learn a little bit more about their stories and pick up some tips along the way. If you want to catch up on past shows or see photos from the interviews, head over to rotarywingshow.com. You can also subscribe on iTunes. Just search for Rotary Wing Show and get future episodes direct to your phone. I'm your host, Mick Cullen. G'day. Welcome back. This is episode 90-90 of the Rotary Wing Show. Wherever you're hanging out in the helicopter world today, again, it is great to have you join in as we get to chat about another topic that impacts us as aircrew and operators. The helicopter airframe market in general is super conservative when it comes to new technology. There are always a lot of approvals and regulations to navigate through to incorporate any new device or system on a flying platform. There are certainly the cost side of things too that might keep many operators and owners from updating aircraft. It's not just the hardware and engineering costs to fit the the actual equipment itself, but that testing and approval paperwork process can cost big bucks too. On the ab initio training side for the general aviation helicopter market, not much has changed for several decades too. If you time walked back to 1995 and compared commercial license training courses to now, maybe some of the changes you'd see is some Capri G2s around now, possibly the Vuchard method being taught, and more focus on psychic back. And about 15% of our own course now is conducted in a virtual reality trainer, which is a, a big change. But for the most part, it'd be very similar for those going through training now outside of the military to what it would have been in 2005 or 1995 or even 1985. One of the biggest changes in helicopter tech for aircrew in the last 10 years has been the introduction of electronic flight bags, piggybacking off the development of the iPad and similar tablets. A bit of trivia that's been kicking around for a while is that your average smartphone has more computing power than they had to get the moon landings done. And the same holds for the computers on board the space shuttles. So this ability to jump into, you know, say a, a 30-year-old jet ranger with steam gauges and bring with us a document library, charts for the entire country, a moving map display, in-flight weather updates, access to weather radars, flight following, performance calculations and other features for less than the the hardware cost of adding a a single aircraft antenna is pretty amazing. Our guest today is someone who has been immersed in the electronic flight bag world for the last few years. Andrew Boniface is a grade one flight instructor based in southeast Queensland here in Australia. We semi-regularly bump into each other here at Redcliffe Airport and we've hosted two training sessions that Andy has run for local pilots on EFBs. Andy talks about his time at what was then the Australia's largest helicopter pilot training organization who had a number of overseas contracts and the process he had there of going through from scratch and setting up a regulator approved management system for that company's fleet of iPads, which were used as EFBs. Andy, thanks very much for having a chat to us tonight on the EFBs, electronic flight bags. Mate, how did you get involved in, in this whole thing? So you went from the flying side, but how did you get started down the track of 
a bit of expertise in this area. Nick, my, my introduction to it was when I was working for Becker Helicopters, which I, I did for probably about six years. I was a, a line pilot and instructor at the time and asked to perform the role of an FE administrator. So, uh, so, so I did that and sort of enjoyed it. You know, I sort of fairly technical in, in my background, although nowhere near as technical as a lot of the, the app development guys and girls that I've, I've talked to in recent times with, with what I do now. However, it, uh, it was something that I was able to sink my teeth into and we had iPad Mini 2s at the time. And over the years, that program went, came along leaps and bounds with quite a lot of innovation from the company. I ended up with about 15 iPad Mini 4s used for both single and twin engine aircraft. All of those devices which were used specifically for an aircraft were approved for weight and balance by a weight control officer, along with all the other manuals and training and whatnot that, that took place to really round off the EFB program under the eyes of CASA and just to make it practically really efficient and helpful for the crew. So that was my introduction, mate, and uh, and also develops a pretty good relationship with the um, the app company Osramways, who who uh, were the provider of uh, of the service. I you know, went on to do some some consulting in years to come, which which all grew from that initial experience and learning I got as a line pilot. It was really good and has helped me out quite a lot. Well, we've made some notes up here, so just to give people an idea of what some of the things we're going to cover. Going to cover just a little bit about the history of of EFBs, you know, some of the reason people used them, uh, different apps on the market, the hardware, different solutions, some of the human factors, things to look at. So there's a bunch of stuff here for anyone who's got just a very general interest, but also someone who actually wants to dive into it. So we'll go into each of those things. But I guess, like anything, let's go back to the start. And you did mention that you know you basically got recognised by Becker's Helicopters and got sent across to Heli Expo and a bunch of things there, just in terms of recognition of what you did there. But let's take us back to the start. How did this whole you know system start? Obviously, we're using iPads now. But uh, what was the early versions of electronic flight bags? Yeah, well, it was only as long as about 10 years ago in 2010 that the first commercial off-the-shelf devices uh, came about, or COTS devices as they're called. And that, as everybody knows, is the iPad. Definitely not the iPad mini at that stage, iPad 1. But yeah, ever since then, it's, it's definitely been ramping up quite a lot, hasn't it? Organisations in the early days uh, were, I guess, only being just, just generally introduced to EFB applications at that time. And they were only really document readers, to be honest then, mate. So air law material and whatnot, and, and saving the operator quite a lot of weight in an aircraft, shall we say, a lot of effort to um, to get updates in and for the suite of regulatory documents. And then over that time, of course, over the last 10 or 11 years, we've seen that EFB App companies have, have spent a lot of time and energy really ramping up that functionality to the point now where, yeah, as we all know, most of us who fly aircraft and also UAVs and, and all sorts of things use EFB. And we know that the uh, the functionality is pretty intense and is always improving. So that's, that's taken large teams of app developers the last 10 years working the standard full-time hours uh, to, to get the app to apps to this point. So yeah, I guess it's quite exciting. And also, I guess as we'll talk about a lot more later on, there's some really exciting uh, additions that, that EFB is going to see in, in the years to come as well. Yeah, I'm looking forward to being part of that as well. 
Yeah, it's good to have you know, your expertise because I kind of did a bit of flying before they came in and then being in the training world, we'll talk about how it fits in, especially the Australian training syllabus, how little we are actually using EFBs. But we kind of, we're almost there. We had laptop planning software where you'd use the, the Falcon View map and you'd put all your waypoints in and do all your tracks and things. But then we used to carry a plotter around with us when we set up somewhere and actually then print everyone out a hard copy paper map from the computer generated route maps. And we'd take that in the cockpit. We just didn't have that next step where you'd actually take the, you know, we just didn't have iPads that weren't around at that stage to bring in the aircraft. I remember going to a, a some kind of tech demo or a conference where someone had actually rigged it up on a laptop. And what he had is you would rig the laptop upside down to the ceiling of the, of the aircraft. There was a little fixed wing and you'd fold the laptop screen down from the ceiling and had the screen upside down with a, a map on it. And that was his very, very early solution before there was iPads. So it's a, it's a good thing where it's at. Yeah, I, and I haven't heard of that one either, mate. So yeah, it's really interesting to hear of all these different, I guess, elements that have contributed to it being the solution that it is these days, for sure. Can you throw some stats at us in terms of how many people are out there uh, using some form of EFB? And uh, I, I guess, you know, some of the advantages. What, why is there, what, what's the business case or why is there a drive to actually use this in the cockpit? Yeah, well, I guess you've found now these days that the early adopters who got into this sort of stuff back in, I guess, the early teens and mid-teens very much moved to mainstream. So in terms of statistics, uh, yeah, the vast, vast majority of, of air crew, both private, commercial, recreational, all use EFB in one way or another. And so it'd be close to 100%, I dare say. The exception from that is, is definitely flight schools, because obviously a lot of the manuals of standards and, and syllabus out there, syllabi, shall we say, don't include uh, units or elements of competency for electronic flight bag, despite it being quite an integral part of what we do, or you know, a, a situational awareness aid, shall we say, and, and supplemental SA tool. So, yeah, that would probably be the, the one key area that it's not represented as much, although there are some schools I've, I've come across, especially back in helicopters where I was based, that, that really embraced it. Just hit the, the high points in terms of what advantages does it bring to us in the, in the cockpit? The obvious ones are assisting with our, our planning, our briefing, and the flight, as you're saying, with, with the cockpit considerations. From those points of view, of course, huge amounts of time saved from the planning and briefing point of view. Plan that would have taken us a long time with a, a pencil, protractor ruler, and, and our flight computer uh, is, is now far, far quicker to produce and uh, and to edit quite quickly as well. Uh, and of course, in the, the fact that a lot of these ESB applications such as Oz Runways, they, they do link to the respective net service or in, in cases of Australia, Air Services Australia and NAPES to be able to uh, access all the relevant weather information. And then, of course, in flight, the, the enhanced SA or situational awareness is great. Improved cockpit ergonomics is, is one fact that I like to touch on as well because, let's face it, we all used to you know, have a paper chart and um, when we were lesser experienced, Pilots were probably like bed sheets at times when we were trying to wrestle with them and hadn't used the alligator clips the right way that we should have prior to the flight. And these days, you know, we're able to uh, mount our EFB in a nice, convenient place in the cockpit or be a kneeboard. And uh, those ergonomics are heaps better without limiting our view externally or of any instrumentation. Of course, the other big benefit, mate, is that we've got the full suite of 
regulatory and AIP information these days on the, the EFB, and that's as part of an approved uh, CAR 175 data service provider in New Zealand or say CASR 175 decimal 295 in Australia. So those certainly aren't easy hoops to jump through for an app provider to get that certification. And of course, I realise a lot of listeners are in the United States and uh, Canada and, and other parts of the world. So equivalent over there. Finally, mate, you've got the updates to all of said data in real time instantly and uh, downloaded before they're even required these days. So you can't beat it really. Yeah, it's quite small. I remember sitting there with the AIP amendments coming through and that'd be a, a night's dedication to sit there with a, a, a stiff drink or a, a cup of coffee or something and, and sit there and crack open the, the folder and, and do the final replace for all the pages. And then again, obviously, you know, your Ursa and your charts sort of change over. So having that in the one place, yeah, huge advantage. And I'm just looking here at the cross from the desk where I've got. I've got my old black pilot case, I guess. Like it's a, a reasonably sized thing. You'd put all your, your books in it in the cestra and put it down inside the, the chair. I've never had one that big in the helicopter. But again, we used to you know carry a canvas bag out with a, a bunch of stuff in there and maps and nurses and things. And I guess now you can pretty much replace it with one iPad and walk out to the aircraft and you've got every single documentation that you, you need with you. So an example of a lot of maps not being a good idea, mate, is I guess in uh, firefighting operations or anywhere where the doors are removed in an aircraft. I remember I was a, a co-pilot in a firefighting operation many years ago. I had about 120 hours in my logbook at the time. and One of my, my only jobs at this phase of flight was to manage the, the maps and manage T, T's and P's as a second set of eyes. And next thing I knew, it was about four or five maps had flown out the out the door and that was uh, that was my fault but uh, with an EFB that's secured properly that would never happen so that's a, a massive bonus for sure from both a, a cost ergonomic and, and practical sense with the subscription I guess each app is a little bit different you might be able to talk to, to some of the apps there but that app subscription comes with the the document updates is that correct that's correct yeah and and I guess that's a good time to jump in with pre-flighting considerations because it's really important to double check that your subscription is valid, that you've got the database downloaded for the country you're in, and finally that you've got the downloads from that database loaded onto your device as well, which is very much a job for on the ground as opposed to getting in the air and realising once maybe you don't have data coverage that, uh, that you're not able to view the relevant charts or ursa or whatever it may be in flight yeah very much so you do get the data included usually what happens is that you'll get a notification in one way or another to remind you about a, between one and three weeks prior to the next air act cycle or uh, relevant data cycle being 14 of them in australia this year to download the next lot of info generally that can be done quite a long way before that air act cycle is becomes valid Andy, can you take us through just a bit of the landscape of what's out there in, in terms of, of different apps that are dedicated for this sort of in-flight and pre-brief, or sorry, pre-flight planning and briefing kind of setup? Yeah, once again, I realise that there's a lot of different people from different countries listening to this. However, in Australia, we've got uh, Oz Runways is the majority market share. Then you've got Plan, 
you've got Garmin Pilot and Jefferson Flight Deck Pro. So they're the four approved data service providers in Oz. Then again, over in the States, for example, you've got four flights, as we know, and believe yeah, Garmin Pilot's over there as well as probably a growing app, but not quite as big as four flights. And then um, finally, I think you've got WingX Pro, but I believe that's right anyway. So they'd be the big ones that cover the planning, briefing, in-flight considerations, in addition to, yeah, some, some other exciting integrations and features that are, are being added these days as well. There's like a second circle of apps, like they're the big ones and going to cover most of the stuff we're going to talk about today. But there's another few apps which will do some kind of data tracking that you can then use in, in briefing. And we had one of our students, I think it was even like a, like a run tracker. Anyway, he took it flying with him, left it in, in, his, in his bag when, when flying, and basically comes back and then you can replay the flight. And then, I guess that's a functionality of some of these other bigger apps. But yeah, there's a whole, I guess, a second ring of, of aviation apps that will have some kind of individual features of these different things that we're going through. But these are the, the fully featured ones that, that we're looking at. So in terms of a fully featured EFB, what are the, the key things that you would basically be looking at in terms of features that you tick off on them? First of all, you've got your situational awareness is, is a big one. The, the key things I like to bring up there is that you've got obviously all your official maps and that's generally represented as a hybrid chart or a hybrid uh, VFR in the case of Oz Runways, whereby all of the WACs, VTCs, VNCs are all stitched together. So effectively, you've got hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dollars of charts across the, the country if you were to buy them individually as paper versions. So that's the first first thing. In addition to that, you've also got traffic, both being um, traffic from similar users that are also using the same app through 3, 3 and 4G. You've also got ADSB traffic if you've got an ADSB receiver in the cockpit that links to your device. So these things all help a lot with SA. The next thing, probably the next two points to make is that the ESB is only going to work as well as the time you put into uh, setting it up uh, before needing it. So effectively, you've got your, your aircraft details, which you can enter in terms of all of the detailed aircraft performance. Aircraft profile is going to have all the information that will carry through to a flight plan if you're needing to submit one. And of course, weight and balance is available as well. So if you've set all that up beforehand, it's going to be nice and quick to be able to then go and submit a flight plan to the, the relevant authority in the country you're in. Also, your pilot details as well is, is important to have done beforehand. Weather and briefings massive, so once again, it's integration with the relevant site, active restricted areas, weather radar overlays, and even we've got overlays these days to be able to see things like graphical area forecasts and grid point wind and temp charts overlaying the, the map of the country. So that can be really, really handy and quite intuitive to just tap on those to get what you want, especially things like SIGMETs, where there's going to be some you know, lats and longs that we used to have to figure out and use a pencil to uh, draw the shape for that particular area in the past. It's now provided, and as long as we double check it, then that's, uh, that's all there. Weather cameras are great too. Now, the other big thing that's quite exciting, mate, is integrations that are uh, available currently, but then also leading into the future. So at the moment, you've got you know some of the major apps that talk to each other. So AppPlan and Oz Runways both have integration with Jefferson Flight Deck Pro. 
the given Jefferson is, is probably, even though it's got a moving map, its main feature is as a plate reader for all the Jefferson instrument approach plates and SIDs, et cetera, because it doesn't have BTCs, BNCs, et cetera, within it. So the fact that these apps talk to each other is quite cool. And also uh, TrackBus, for example, that's integrated with, with apps like Oz Runways too for, for messaging and whatnot, using those units through the app. And, uh, and additional integrations coming up in the future. Things like Champagne Flight Planner for those organisations and individuals that want a desktop planner is also integrated through major apps like like Oz Runways. So definitely more of those integrations to look out for. Andy, I know we're going to talk a lot about the, the regulation requirements, but for commercial uh, organisations, what's some of the, the business case uh, ideas there for a commercial organisation to, to transfer across to an EFB setup? Yeah, well, effectively, Nick, we've moved into the digital information management age, and, and that's where you know every industry on the planet, I guess, is taking advantage of that and the, the efficiencies that, that that age brings. And it depends on how much we embrace that as to how much we'll be able to obviously get the benefits. So I guess the, the way I like to break it down is, first of all, with compliance. If an organisation uses EFB, it can actually be easier as long as they jump through the EFB hoops in their respective countries to, uh, to be compliant with, with what they need to do uh, and take a lot less time to be compliant. So EFBs, you've got easy subscription management. Um, you've got a document lock right there. You know, you're able to upload all of the documents if you'd like to to a central dashboard on a, on a, a web-based program on a computer and that will populate all the EFBs within a company. HLS register. That, that's really cool. I really like that feature, having used all of this a lot myself, to be able to uh, just pick up any device, uh, aircraft-specific device, I go for a flight for a particular company and see all the company HLSs and then be able to tap on a HLS on a hybrid VFR chart and see PDFs show up, letting me know all the relevant information about that HLS and any dangers and obstacles and whatnot. So that's a massive one for for us um, angry palm tree drivers, for sure. And look, another big one there as well is uh, lockable aircraft profiles, legalised weight and balance, and, and much more along with the accurate performance figures that we can get through um, through that sort of thing. Safety is a big one. Let's face it, there is reduced corporate risk because the crew workload is, is less, particularly working together well in a multi-crew environment, but also as a single pilot, of course. You've definitely got faster access to info and SOPs can be automated through devices and that can be done through a range of ways like using KML overlays, which overlay the relevant chart you're looking at. And of course, the biggest one, as I said before, is time saving. So you can use products that I've touched on, like Enterprise Dashboard would be one, and also mobile device management to, uh, to really make this, this sort of EFB program within a company quite streamlined and work really well for you. The cost reduction is, even though companies sort of see the 799 Australian dollar price tag on a iPad Mini 5 with cellular and Wi-Fi and wince a bit, which I completely get for a large volume of, of devices, it's actually going to save save money. had a, a couple of really interesting stories that I've, I've heard. One's from a regional airline that I do a bit of work with, and the EFB administrator there was saying that the optimised altitudes feature alone 
through through the app they were using, he figured out, uh, and I've sort of run the maths, and it's um, I, I certainly agree now. It's going to save an equivalent amount of fuel, and therefore money, for that company in a very short space of time, which will actually pay for the EFB fleet. Just things like that, and being able to optimise the altitudes, reference uh, um, winds, and, and better fuel burns is, is a massive plus for for those companies. Yeah, similar things for, for rotary operators as well. You can transfer that across to our, our rotary world also. All right, so just to tease out some of those things you spoke about there. So that optimised altitude, essentially you put your route in, you import the, the weather for that day, and it'll be our slice and dice the weather to be able to tell you that you know, you're going to save five minutes by flying at, at 7,000 feet versus 5,000 feet. That's what you're getting at there. Exactly right, and you'll receive altitude options that go right up to the ceiling that you've set in your aircraft profile, and the options you'll get also will be in accordance with you know the, the hemispherical cruising altitudes or flight levels, depending on what you're doing. And effectively, yeah, you can literally just very quickly choose the altitude you want once you've completed your plan and uh, just tweaking it. All right, the other two ones there, I'll just get you just to touch on again before we leave that section. The importance of being able to lock down the weight and balance information for a, a company fleet. And then if you just want to talk about the KML file again in terms of how that would physically work and what you'd see on the screen for people who aren't familiar with what a KML file is. Yeah, as, as most people would know, weight and balance to be approved through an electronic source like one of these applications or, or otherwise, a, a weight control officer or a, or a laney or the, the relevant person in the country that you're in needs to be happy that the, the data can't be changed by the end user. So you've got management team and EFB administrator and let's call it a weight control officer in the case of Australia or Lamy in New Zealand, they're all sort of teaming up just to make sure that the data output from an application and the center of gravity that you're getting within a given envelope, especially forward and aft limits and, and max takeoff weight limits, is all going to be equal and the same info output but from the, uh, the application to what would be a, a manual calculation through a spreadsheet or even by hand. If any of the empty load data sheet info can be changed, then of course that's that's not going to give the weight control officer the warm and fuzzies to approve it. So there needs to be a way to, yeah, exactly as you say, mate, to lock the aircraft profiles so that the end user can't can't change it. And the way that that happens is through an enterprise dashboard or a, a management software. In this case, Oz Runways, it's a, a web-based program that allows you to manage all your devices from the one point. You upload your aircraft profiles onto it and it's as easy as a little box check that allows you to lock the profile so therefore the end user can't change anything other than the relevant station weights for passengers, fuel, baggage, that kind of thing. Our second part of your question made about KML overlays. I had a really, really good experience using these at one point when I was on a search, uh, we were buzzing along on our way up. We probably had about a 30 to 45 minute ferry to get to look for a gentleman who'd capsized a vessel just off Harvey Bay a few years ago. And this was my first experience of really thinking, geez, these KMLs are great. So AMSA, the relevant authority in Australia that, that sends search patterns and whatnot to different aircraft to be able to search for the said missing person, sent us our search pattern and I was able to 
plotted into the, the TSR approved GPS, the Garmin 430, with the details, but I was also able to bring up the KML overlay on the device. No hundreds of waypoints or anything like that. It's literally a, an overlay such as one that's created in Google Earth, for example, that you can follow. And, and look, that can also be used, mate, for things like avoid areas, training areas, fly neighbourly areas. It's also been used very successfully in New Zealand recently for some quite detailed overlays for Department of, of Conservation over there, which has been really, really great to see for, for people's essay of where those, those national park areas are. Yeah, that's exactly what I was hoping you just break that down. That's awesome. So the next point we've got here in front of us that we we're looking at, Andy, was the, the training side of things. And I can chip in here in a little bit and maybe just talk about our experience being a, a training provider not using EFB. But yeah, where are we at with, with training in terms of what are the requirements and, and what are some of the organisations that you're actually working with for training? Pretty exciting at the moment. I'm really fortunate, mate, to be doing some training with the Australian Defence Force, and that's largely RAF Navy. I got to go down to HMAS Albatross and learn a lot from the helicopter gang down there as well. Uh, numerous airframes and whatnot. For those that aren't aware, it's, it's one of the, the major uh, helicopter training bases, even for, um, for army pilots who are learning initially in the 135 before they go on to bigger and better aircraft in the army, um, will pass through there again in an hour. So that was amazing. And my role there is just to really run through electronic flight bay considerations and training. And particularly in this case, and you know, I've, and I've uh, dropped the name a few times, but this contract belongs to Oz Runways. So I'm sort of consulting and representing Oz Runways in that respect. Yeah, we do uh, training for end users in terms of all the aircrew, be they navigators or pilots. And we also do training for EFB managers to teach them how to manage their fleet of EFBs using the web-based software that uh, that's provided as well. So it's quite enjoyable. And, and look, I guess that's a, a really good lead-in to suggesting that, you know, the Australian Defence Force considers it quite important to provide this training. So... I, I really think that they're on the right page there, and uh, and so is CASA, also the CAA in New Zealand, because they've mandated training as a, a necessity for an air operator certificate holder and, and pilots flying commercially for such companies. That That is a requirement and, and extremely important just to make sure that, of course, air crew aren't going to suffer from particular human factors because they don't know how to use an EFB very well. We'll touch on those a bit later, but very quickly, distraction, fixation, over-dependence. So the training really helps to avoid those those factors or those, those negatives to crop up and therefore create errors. Yeah, my, my, one of my passions in the world of EFP, Nick, is to really drive that, that training forward to hopefully see it in the not-too-distant future included as a unit of competency and relevant syllabus for training so that students of flight schools will be mandated, I guess, to to be doing this particular training under the guidance of an instructor. At the moment, obviously, it's quite hard with the amount of hours in a commercial course these days, 100 to 105 hours, as, as you well know. So it's, uh, yeah, a matter of finding ways to, to fit that EFB training in, and, and that's why I'd like to see that happen. Yeah, that's probably where I can jump in now from our point. Yeah, and you know, I guess I can make excuses why we're not using EFBs during our, our training course. But 
when it comes to the commercial flight test, it doesn't appear anywhere in the assessment criteria. And as you said, our, our manual of standards in Australia has no units of, of competency against use of an EFB. And so when people go for their commercial license, they've got to be able to use a, a paper map and get around and, and use all of the normal systems that you would use without using an EFB. There may be some examiners out there who recognise a bit of leniency there and let people use it, but we've got to train them essentially to be able to use, get around a commercial flight with zero EFB to meet the test standard. And as you said, yeah, when we carve up our time in, in the syllabus, we don't really have the, the airborne time to, to do both. Uh, and that's kind of where we're, we're sitting at. And that's where you said you're, I guess, consulting with CASA and, and seeing where they're at in terms of bringing that in as part of training. Yeah, and it's going to be a little while, I think, mate, because the Part 61 obviously came in a, a while back now and there's still some things that, that are, you know, a higher priority to incorporate or to change within it, which I completely understand. So look, it'll, it'll happen in due course. I, I guess the, the other thing to remember with it is that uh, hopefully in due course, the, uh, the navigation sorties will be able to include EFB I'd really like to see failures of the EFB included so that there's no over-dependence on those devices. Suddenly an instructor could say, oh, look, mate, you've, uh, you've had an over-temp of your EFB. What are you going to do? And then there should come the, uh, the paper charts out to, uh, to, to form that redundancy function. So that's just, just one idea of, of doing that by maybe using EFB for, I don't know, two out of eight or ten NAV sorties. Yeah, and we've showed about before too, and obviously very conscious that often that people's first use of an EFB is they've got their license, and they jump out either their, their first job or uh, on private flights, and they're essentially now flying with an EFB and, and learning as they go and, and sort of teaching themselves while they're while they're flying as their first experience of it, which is is not ideal. Agreed, and uh, yeah, it's all going in the right direction though I think, and look, there's there's definitely encouraging signs and a lot of commercial companies, I'd say the majority, are looking towards EFB training now, which is great to see. Well, with the time we've got left, let's, let's keep cracking through some of the, the guts of it then. So let's cover initially now the, the regulatory requirements in terms of private and commercial ops, and again, however much you can tease for, from different countries there, and then into some of the, you know, the specific functions in terms of hardware and, and human factors. So let's hit regulatory requirements first. What have you got for us there? I guess to, to kick off by comparing between some countries, there, everybody loves, I guess, the ownership position that we, we see through these EFB apps, in which case that's utilising GPS within the device, as most people are aware, to, uh, to see your own aircraft icon, which, um, you know, we can, we, can, uh, we can tweak it to be a helicopter as, as soon as we get that app and get a subscription, which is, is pretty cool. In New Zealand, however, there's no ownership position allowed, and that's um, mandated through their advisory circular 9120, whereas Australia sort of follows the lead of the FAA with their advisory circular 12076D, which allows ownership position. The big caveat there, mate, is just to say that it's meant to be used as a situational awareness aid. It's not meant to be used in place of a TSO-approved GPS or anything like that, but it is for us to have a look at where we think we are, have a look where the ownership position is represented on the EFB and use the same navigational principles of looking outside to try to find the features which we see on the on the EFB, going from big to small, natural to man-made, et cetera. So 
That's probably the first one to point out. It's a situation awareness tool only. And even though the GPS is pretty bloody good in it, it's, it's not TSO approved. I guess the other parts from a regulatory point of view that are slightly different between countries would be redundancy. It, the FAA, I'm told, having not flown over there myself over in the States or, or Canada, for Canada's regulator there, is fairly, I, I guess, simplifies the law a lot more than it's represented in Australia. It's been told to me by, by numerous people and professionals and people that are regulators as well. And so part of that, I guess, is there's a bit more trust in terms of not making the redundancy device compulsory in the United States. It is recommended, however, it's not compulsory. So in Australia and New Zealand, of course, you must have redundancy, and that's in the form of paper charts or a second device. Smaller companies sometimes will go for paper charts based on looking at cost in the short term, moderate to the larger companies will probably go to two devices, either per pilot or per aircraft there as well. So the redundancy is a little bit different between countries is one to, uh, to point out there. The other regulatory parts, mate, I guess, really falls on terms like um, class, functionality, what the hardware will, will, will include in your cockpit. Also things like EMIs and radiation and other environmental considerations. So I know it's uh, you're probably going to want me to go into some of these in, in greater detail, but there's a huge amount under the regulations, and it really does depend on the country that you're you're flying in, as to which advisory circulars and relevant air law that you're complying with there. Okay, well let's hit the Australian stuff in terms of functionality in class, because there'll be parallels overseas that people can sort of it won't be exact, but they can get the you know, I guess the, the gift of it from. Which one is which? So talk me through. I know one of them talks about being on, on your knee and, and mounting to, you know, say, a, a windscreen and being removable. And then the other part of it is in terms of the, talking to the aircraft. So can you quickly just, I guess, hit the highlights on the differences between the, the functionalities and, and the classes? Yeah, great. So class very much refers to how a device is secured in the cockpit. You know, in the States, for example, portable and installed. In Australia, class one, two, and three. In New Zealand, class one, two, and installed. So that's kind of how it's broken down. And what those numbers mean, number one is portable device, which can either be on a knee board or it can be on a portable mount. An example of that is a suction cup or a clamp mount, for example. So that's very much a class one. In Australia, if it's a class one mount with suction cups, then the device needs to be stowed during critical phases of flight, which is takeoff landing, below 1,000 AGL and turbulence. So not very practical, which is, I guess, why you see some organisations forking out for an engineering order or even an STC solution to get a Class 2 or a permanently secured mount. In that case, the uh, the device is legally allowed to stay in the, the mounting assembly at all times, even those critical stages of, of flight. That's your class two and, and definitely advantageous for that. Little story there, mate, is I was flying a, a long ranger at one stage with a suction cup mount. Completely my fault. I didn't pre-flight the, the mount and the suction remaining within the suction cup prior to that flight, as you should the rest of your EFB and the aircraft, of course. And it's cruising along at about 1500 AGL and the, uh, the whole EFB assembly Luckily, it was an iPad mini and, and not too heavy. It fell on my cyclic arm. So it wasn't wasn't a huge deal. 
But you could see how if that happened at the wrong time uh, during a you know a, quite a, an intense phase of flight, shall we say, then um, it probably wouldn't be great. I just sort of picked it up and put it on the, the seat next to me at the time. That's why the class two devices are, are pretty cool or mounting configurations. Class three is aircraft installed, which is sort of gets gets quite complex. Your functionality, mate, is what it can do. So now we're looking at a basic moving map display for functionality level one. Functionality level two in Australia, at least, is then where you're getting into the nitty gritty of approved weight and balance, approved fuel calculations, anything that requires an algorithm and manual input from aircrew to be able to punch out some performance figures. So that's your functionality level two. And if you want to achieve that within an organization, at least, that needs to be noted in your ops manual supplement 3FB as such. And then your functionality level three and four gets uh, it's quite intense once again, looking more like at, at airlines and things where the flight management system is being talked to by the EFB. On that moving map, you were just describing before the difference with New Zealand to Australia and the US where you, and you talked about the the own ship position, and I, and I guess that's the the technical term in, in the regs and that. But effectively, that's just a moving map, and, and you've got the aircraft position in the middle being displayed. So in, in the New Zealand, I guess you just have to keep scrolling the map around as opposed to having that aircraft display in the, in the middle of the map and have the map scroll as you fly. That's correct. And, and look, there's word on the grapevine that, that that may change to conform with with other other regulations as well in other countries in the not too distant future, but who knows? And you've nailed it exactly right with that description there too, Mick. That yeah, it's literally just like having having the paper chart, but instead you're you're scrolling around to confirm position rather than having your aircraft icon where where the GPS on the device is picking it up at. Okay, let's hit hardware. Pretty much you've been talking all the way through, really it's it's iOS devices. How much market is there for Android or, or other devices other than iOS? It's emerging for sure with uh, with apps like Runway from Oz Runways. That's their Android version. Um, Adplan has both iOS and Android. Forflight, I believe, over in the States is iOS only, so it's a big commitment from them just to be on the iOS platform. Garmin Pilots on both. So, yeah, you'd have to say that iOS has definitely got the lion's share, but, you know, you do um, obviously get that uh, iOS versus Android argument by people that are, you know, diehard one or the other and, and people that love their Android uh, will, that, that are in aviation at least will, will um, be on the support channels quite a lot asking for, uh, for enhancements in the Android versions. Really cool thing that one of the app developers said to me once to explain where the Android versions for a lot of these apps sit is that they've got everything that you need, but not necessarily everything that you want in terms of functionality. And look, that's because 2010, when the iPad came out, it was it was the trendsetter. The, the race began with it. And so I guess Android's been playing catch up in terms of EFB applications and what they can do. And it's, most people in aviation have iOS and that's where the, the app development hours and money are probably tailored towards more. However, Android is, is catching up also. In terms of hardware, what do you get aviation hardware-wise? I mean, we're talking, you're holding an iPad in your hand. What else comes with it? Uh, you, you talked me through a, a time before that we, we went into detail about the GPS, but yeah, can you just break down what you actually get inside a, an iPad? 
Well, you mentioned the GPS. I'll kick off there. It is a pretty good GPS, although I keep having, having to say it, it's not TSO approved. You can actually use assisted GPS with these devices because you've got not only a link to four different satellite systems that are feeding the GPS, you've also got three and 4G telco towers. So assisted GPS literally just means that your, your position, if you've got ownership position allowed in the country you're in, is sourcing the telco towers as well. So you get a really quick position acquisition, unlike, you know, GPS has to load up with multiple bars and different satellites that are, are tuning in. That's probably the first thing to note. And, um, you know, even things like some, some internal Raymond fault detection and exclusion, which is an, an advertised feature. Also with the, your hardware as well, you've got quite some interesting, I guess, battery and overtent considerations, which we can talk at, talk about a little bit later. So it's not to overcomplicate things now. The things that we can actually touch are the cases, the mounts, touch on those things. Some cooling mounts are quite exciting these days and, and other technology that's coming out to keep devices a bit cooler. You've of course got the, the, the protection that's going to sit on the, on the face of the device. So it's a good idea to have something there that will also allow you to use it as an e-board and write on it if you're not using it as, as an EFB right at that moment. And then of course you've got things like ADSB receivers soon to come on the market ADSB in and out devices which are called uh, electrical conspicuity devices here in Australia. We, we don't have ADSB transponders mandated as broadly as the states for those that aren't aware uh, here in Australia just for IFR aircraft at this stage. So having these sort of, sorts of ADSB receivers and, and, and in and out devices coming on the market is quite a, a cool piece of hardware. Look, it's really exciting. There's a whole bunch of different kit that you can get your hands on, and it's just going to keep going places as, as time goes on as well. Typical aviation stuff, we have abbreviations for everything. You know, most people will have a clue of what ASB does in terms of when we're looking at the iPad. But can you just talk through that again? When you're saying in and out, what's, what's the functionality that we get when we're looking at an EFB with the ASB? Can you just explain that for people? I'll start with, with a transponder. So as people know, uh, ADSB solution is, is something that's come about in recent years and it was probably in the pipeline for a lot longer than that to uh, replace just the standard mode C transponder. These transponders have an ADSB out function whereby ATC is able to, to pick up that signal and of course know where the aircraft is, but then also apps like Flight Radar 24 and flight aware and whatnot use the ADSB signal. Aircraft that don't have ADSB still have mode, mode Charlie, for example, or in the case of recreational aircraft in, in class G or OCTA, they might not even have a have a transponder. So that's where it comes in really handy to have an ADSB receiver. And the more aircraft that have an ADSB receiver, given that you're able to link it wirelessly to your EFB will be able to see the, the position of other aircraft that have an ADSB out. That's why this electrical conspicuity in and out device is, is going to be quite cool if a large majority of the aviation public in places like Australia and New Zealand were to, to take that on. And, and the, the, probably the case or use case that I can really point out there is in a busy fire season with so many helicopters and fixed wing in close proximity to each other, 
a lot of these aircraft don't have an ADS-B transponder in these parts of the world, because once again, they're not IFR, so they're not required to. So these sorts of devices are quite cool. Now, the big difference, mate, is in Australia, we've got quite good data coverage from our 3G, 4G, and probably soon 5G network. A lot of the, the EFB devices are able to receive weather and all sorts of information just through those networks. And that's why it's important in Australia and New Zealand to have a Wi-Fi plus cellular device, or I think in the States it's called an LTE device. Whereas in the States, it's quite different. The, the data coverage from telco towers is nowhere near as good. And I don't know the reasons for that. I guess it's the, the, the massive landmass that the, the country represents. However, what happens instead is, is people probably stick, I'm told, to more Wi-Fi-only devices because they, most of them have an ADS-B receiver and the ADS-B receivers will, will actually receive on a different wavelength, uh, 978 instead of 1090 megahertz. And they'll receive the, uh, the, the weather and, and data information to, to link wirelessly to the EFB. So it has, it's quite different, but ADS-B yeah, is technology which is used not just for transponders like a lot of people think, it's quite cool to use to link with your EFB and, and depending on what country you're in, the functionality changes. Okay, and I, and I guess the end result for us as a user is we can look at our iPad, in this case, or our EFB, and we get that situation awareness. We can see the other airborne aircraft around us on the map and, and that's the, the end, end result advantage for us. And that's exactly it. And uh, I guess the limitation of simply being able to see traffic that are using the same app that really depends on data coverage. It's probably going to be on the way out in due course. And, you know, everybody having ADSB will mean that everyone will see each other irrespective of app or irrespective of if another EFB application is closed in a different aircraft or traffic feature turned off. It, it's definitely a, an SA tool, not a TCAS and not to be used as an excuse to bring that lookout inside the cockpit, that's for sure. We, Look out, listen out, it's most important. See and avoid. Yeah, that, that, that's probably what I'd like to say about that one. I, I haven't used it, I'm just putting it on the spot here, I guess. If you do have another aircraft on the display there, whether it's it's sharing with another, you know, Oz Runways user, if you're both using that, or one of the other apps where you're using the same app and you can see the other aircraft on your screen, does it do a, a quasi software TCAS type thing? As if you get close, it'll give you alerts? Interesting you ask that, mate. It doesn't right now. I don't know about ForeFlight, for example, if that does it. So apologies to all you ForeFlight flight users out there. But uh, it is functionality which has been discussed a lot. And I submitted a, a safety case to the Bushfire Royal Commission here in Australia, which uh, for those internationals, it's quite a, a large natural disaster commission set up to... Uh, Look at how we can do things a little bit better after the last epic fire season. What the big thing I put in there was, was exactly what you've just mentioned, mate, to just be able to enhance SA, but also have some power line overlays and, and, and quite a few other elements were included in that submission to increase safety by using EFB more efficiently to do so, using the technology that we've got at our disposal, why not? Right, this is probably the next bit, you know, some of the guts of this sort of stuff. So let's talk about some of the human factors and some of the, the threat and error management that, that you talk about in the training courses that you run. Okay, can you take us through the, the highlights there? 
I guess the way to, to kick that off is is by really pointing out the fact that around 80% of aircraft incidents and accidents involve a human factor. And that's that's not to say that the human factor is the major cause, but it's just an element. In this day and age with the technology we've got, this, this is still the case. Some of these causes, I guess, which could link to electronic flight bag, once again, things like fixation, overdependence, distraction, and if you consider that in a VFR flight, we're supposed to be looking outside for 90% of the time for a lookout and a pitch and roll attitude assessment. Or in an IFR flight, we're supposed to be, as, as those of you that fly IFR would know, around about, I don't know, 95% of the time looking at the AI. You know, anything that's detracting from those percentages and reducing those percentages, such as not knowing how to use an EFB device or relying on it too heavily with some of these traffic features we've been talking about is going to degrade the external scan and uh, degrade the instrument scan if that's the case and open the door for, for increased errors to occur. And, and then, of course, that's when you've got your threat and error management coming, coming through and uh, potential for things like undesired attitude or controlled flight to terrain at the extreme worst. There's actually a uh, safety report from the States. A gentleman was flying, in this case it was a fixed wing aircraft, so not, not quite rotary, but was, was on final approach about 20 feet, grabbed the iPad for who knows what reason from the other seat. And uh, I guess, you know, human beings, we're, we're all kind of, we're all kind of limited in one way or another, but this particular person to come to the eye magnet, which was the EFB, and plow the aircraft into the ground. And unfortunately, was you know didn't didn't uh, get any injuries. But uh, yeah, these are the sorts of events that well, most people listening would be thinking, well, no, this is a bit silly. No one's ever going to control flight to terrain because of an EFB. Well, it happened in that case. Someone that might be flying low level or even just on the base of of cloud could easily go and invert an IMC because the cyclic input has suddenly been inaccurate for what was required. So, yeah, that, that's probably what I'd like to touch on predominantly from the beginning, mate. And, and also just to say we can really set ourselves up for success by tweaking the iOS settings, uh, if you're using Apple, that is, and tweaking the app-specific preferences or settings. So if you tweak those to, to suit you, that's going to be one of the best planning countermeasures, I should say, that that you're going to be able to do. That, that's going to help you reduce the workload, reduce distraction with things like notifications popping up. If the screen may be locking, needing to enter a passcode and a vibrating cockpit, all of these things are completely avoidable just by tweaking those settings initially. And then of course, within the app, we can, uh, we can tweak those settings to give us shortcuts and less button pushes to perform a particular function and an example there for you is you know one of the, the more widely known apps as you are getting closer to a particular aerodrome or in the planning phase and in the cruise 30 miles out you can just double tap on that particular aerodrome and the aerodrome chart will, will pop up for you to be able to see exactly what you need to see in terms of runway also uh, frequencies and taxiways for once you've commenced and completed your final approach to assist with taxi clearances by ground frequency. So these are all things that you can really do to set yourself up for success in, in a big, big way. 
I think you've got a video there which, which walks people through quite a few of those settings that uh, we can direct people towards at the end of this setup. Uh, rather than sort of list everything off, people can sit there and just watch a video and, and do the ones that you sort of highlight there as, as your recommended tweaks. And as you're talking there, I'm picturing that kneeboard, that class one where, where it's it's on your leg and you're looking down at it. You just you can't see the horizon when you're looking down at your, at your leg. And so that time you spend looking down is going to be taking away from attitude control or purely just a, a lookout for other traffic. Uh, so that was your intro there for it. And yeah, that's probably the, the first point. You're just spending more time in the cockpit. Yeah, most definitely, and, and believe it or not, even for some some really large operators flying one three nines, flying uh, from a regional jet perspective, big Saabs, you know, twenty forty seater aircraft, uh, that, that there's still a lot of organisations using kneeboards, and some of that is because of cockpit real estate, and, and there's other reasons for that as well. But I, I guess the main thing is that it's completely safe if as long as it's being used correctly and. I remember my dad up in humid cans back in the day used to say to me before I opened the fridge, I needed to know what I was going to get out of it. Otherwise, the 40 degree and extreme humidity temperatures were going to uh, heat up the fridge. And it's no different to your EFB, I guess. You know, we just got to know what we want to look at, what we want to do, and maybe even think about how we're going to achieve it before we look down at the device and start getting getting fixated on it that starts of course with training spending the time getting to know what the features are and how to do things with the, the minimum button pushes and hopefully just using the device as a, a set and forget style device just like a paper chart would would sort of be a lot of the time in flight would be my recommendation there some of these start to get a little bit more tactical now do you want to run through some ifr considerations night considerations mvg considerations those bits and pieces, like some of the more tactical things? And not so, not so much military tactical, but just in terms of nitty-gritty things like, you know, gloves. Hey, we'll kick off with IFR in that case. And, and so from an IFR point of view, everyone's always used uh, instrument approach plates and paper, usually in a, an A5 display folio seems to be the most popular way, an effective way, or or having a, a kneeboard with, with plastic sleeves and, and the relevant A5 plate within it. So these days using EFB, a couple of things there is that obviously if you were to accidentally say exit the instrument approach plate while you were using it on an approach, that wouldn't be good, nor would it be good if the device overtemps, nor would it be good if, if you had a failure for a number of reasons. So it's up to us to, I guess, set ourselves up for success once again. I, I really recommend when you're using an instrument approach plate, uh, IFR in those critical phases, to make sure that you've locked the screen, which all of these apps can do. I also suggest that you do something where you preload all the charts that you're probably going to need for an instrument flight, if you can do that. And uh, most of these apps, once again, give you the ability to do that. So it's just like if you had the old paper plates and uh, plastic sleeves on an e-board where you used to file the, the six most likely approaches that you were going to need to do, dependent on wind and, and runways at various aerodromes on a flight. So you can just do that still on an EFB by preloading a minimum of six charts to be able to minimise your workload in flight. And those people at IFR know that you can get quite busy and 90% and of that busyness is, is closer to a destination. So uh, they'd be my tips there. From an IFR training point of view, it's quite important for EFB to only come in about halfway through, let's say, a 40-hour syllabus. The initial instrument rating, rotor wing instrument rating. So 
that way the, the papers are being used effectively and then moving on to EFB from, from known to unknown a little bit. From a, a night point of view, mate, as, as you know, and, and some listeners know, the NVG flying, your, your eyes aren't quite as night adapted as they are for night VFR, just because you are looking into the NVGs and, and receiving an amplified amount of light. So in Australia, for those in the States, we've got night VFR, which I understand isn't really a thing in some other countries. You know, I really suggest that you treat the EFB in the same way that you dim down a lot of the other equipment in the, in the cockpit, including GPS screens, RADOLTS, um, Aspen screens, that sort of thing. Dim it down. My, my preference is just to use the standard iOS dimming, which you can generally do within an app these days. You've also got invert features, which some apps have included within them, or if you're an iOS or Apple user, why not just use the smart or classic invert, which um, turns the the lighter colours to dark and the dark to light. So you're generally going to emit a lot less photons into your eyeballs and, uh, you know, stuff up your, your night vision in that case. They'd probably be the, the big ones there from, from those considerations. And, of course, just turning off your EFB when you're not using it. There's no need to keep it on the whole time. That goes for visual flight as well and, uh, and preventing overtemping. Why not just put it to sleep when you're not using it making sure that the passcode's turned off, the auto lock's turned off, and that's going to reduce the light being emitted for any night flying as well. From a glove point of view, mate, um, I actually received a, a, a spam today from a uh, aviation equipment provider, of course, in gloves, and I've done a bit of research, of course, in due course as well, but um, a lot of the, the, the Nomex gloves these days, you probably for about $50, you get a pair of Nomex gloves, which uh, EFB friendly and allow you to um, toggle a, an EFB screen, even if it's got a glass screen protector, which can occasionally make it a bit harder. But that's all tickety-boo these days. No problem at all. I think you told me you just cut the fingers off your gloves and just run that way. Yeah, well, that, that was because I've, I've got my favourite pair of lucky gloves, mate. So, uh, you know, they, they didn't have the tech in them to uh, be able to uh, toggle an EFB screen. So I literally just snipped off with the fingertip, one or two mils off the index finger. Now the thumb seems to work for some reason. So, yeah, I mean, that's not even required these days if you just buy the relevant gloves, but they're pretty cheap from an aviation standpoint. And you mentioned a couple of times the, the overheating, and I guess that's one of the, the things you'd be trying to avoid in terms of immediate actions and, and emergency procedures for a, an EFB. What are some of the considerations there about trying to avoid that happening and, and dealing with it? The best way to look at that is is from three points of view. So the heat that is going to be generated from a device is heat that it, it receives, first of all, but also heat that it creates, and then a lack of ability to dissipate that heat, particularly in places without redundancy or in some, some private circles uh, for, for private pilots out there. It's a bit of a grey area, and the redundancy probably isn't quite as strict. It, it's important just to make sure that you're not going to have an overtemp and lose your device if, if you don't have that redundancy, especially. So in terms of heat received by the device, a really good idea to make sure that the uh, the screen is angled in a position that isn't going to cop as much surface area of direct sunlight. And that also includes when an aircraft parked prior to takeoff and getting refueled, 
partway through a sortie or a flight, and not leaving it in the direct sunlight. Uh, you can easily angle the device that way to, uh, to receive less radiated heat. The second one is the, the heat that's created by the device. You can limit that, of course, by dimming down the screen. That's also going to save your battery a lot, but you're dimming down the screen. Closing background apps that you don't need, making sure that you've just turned the, put the EFB to sleep or the device to sleep when you're not using it. That's quite a large one. You've got any internal vents in the, the cockpit, that's, that's a good thing to use those for sure. And that's what, what comes to the third point is the heat being dissipated. So a lot of cooling cases these days enable that to happen. And interestingly enough, Apple published that 35 degrees is the maximum temperature Celsius, I should say, that these devices should be exposed to and then they'll start to overtemp. There's been some testing done by, by these devices that have been in rooms up to 45 degrees without direct sunlight on them. And just a little bit of airflow is enough to make sure that that, that heat buildup inside the device at least isn't getting to an overtemp scenario. A big thing there to note is that these devices are designed to dissipate heat from the back. So what do we do? We put them in a in a case which really blocks that in a lot of instances from happening. So cooling cases are good from companies like uh, MyGoFlight, Xnort, and, and also Pivot is a really good organization for its design. Even though it's not a cooling case per se with fans in it, it there's only 18% of the rear surface of the device which is in contact with the case. So there's a lot of ventilation there. Uh, a lot of ability for the, the cooling to be applied and the heat to be dissipated from the rear surface as designed. So that's a, that's a pretty cool one as well. And look, if all of these things are, are done as a bit of a combined defense, then um, you know, you're on the right track to preventing an overtemp. A good thing about helicopters, I guess, is our, our fuel load means we're not going to be up there for, for 10 hours in one go and running out of iPad battery in that regard. But if we're up and down all day and using it all day without charging, battery becomes a consideration. What's, you know, what are the different ways of powering it, uh, backup power sources, and that sort of stuff that you sort of run across and you recommend for people? Yeah, well, these things have about um, a thousand charging cycles, probably becoming more with the, with the newer iPads coming onto the market. The more that the device is going from 100% to zero and flat, essentially, the, um, the, the, the more that the lifespan of the device is running out. The best thing to do is to really limit those, those amount of charging cycles to prolong the life of the device. That's from a, a long-term point of view. From a short-term point of view, what you want to do is make sure that once again, all the, the background apps are closed. If you're in an area with a cellular device that's in and out of cellular coverage, that's going to draw the battery a lot more as well. So worth considering that, just like somebody's phone in a remote area is going to go flatter quicker. Making sure you've got the latest operating system downloaded because that's going to allow your battery to drain more slowly and just keeping your eye on over time as well as to what the the, the battery performance is doing which is available as most people know through iOS settings these days is to look at battery health. From a charging in the aircraft point of view mate it's, um, you've got two options really. One is to use an auxiliary charger, your cigarette lighter style charger that pops in there with USB 
output using a, a lightning cable in the case of Apple, you can uh, you can easily charge the device that way. It's just a good idea just to keep it plugged in once again to make sure that you've got the, the battery you require, but also to limit the charging cycles. And uh, the second one there would be a portable battery pack. And I recommend for those, just making sure that you purchase a good quality one because buy cheap, pay twice really, as they say. And especially when it comes to aviation, you don't want to risk eating the safety by having something that's cheap and nasty that's got the term battery in it. They'd be the, the two elements there. I found it quite interesting at Becker Helicopters back in the day, we needed a, a, to buy a two meter lightning cables and found that those particular cables charged the devices a lot more slowly than the one meter lightning cables. And after talking to an electrician, it was sort of explained to me why that was with things like resistance and whatnot. So just, just worth mentioning that and that a lot of the time an aircraft being charged in excuse me, an EFB being charged in an aircraft might not even increase its charge while it's plugged into to a cable. It might just maintain it based on, on how it's being used and what sort of cable is, is being used as well. They're probably the, the main things to, to think about and also just to finally throw in there from a, a human factor point of view and an ergonomic point of view, just to make sure that that, that cable is secured and when it's not in use, hopefully be wrapped up and have somewhere that it can be stowed so it's not going to get in the way of the collective or the cyclic or the throttle or just get in your way, basically. All right, Andy, I think what we might do, just given the time, do you want to just pick out a couple of unique or really super useful sort of uh, scenarios where you've used it before, or you've heard of people using their EFB to get the most value out of it? And then we might find out if you want to just talk a little bit more about, you know, what it is that you do and, and the company that you set up. Thanks, Nick. We'll probably use a, a case. Uh, I fly the, a B3 Squirrel for a media outlet. And essentially what we've sort of found is that the amount of time you've spent setting up that device, the aircraft profile and putting your pilot details in it long before a flight actually comes in, a burning house or a you know, sort of police chase, that sort of thing, the quicker it's going to be. So we literally find that going to Class C airspace we can submit a plan in about probably 30 seconds to NAPES here in Australia and, and go and just jump in the aircraft. Relevant phone call probably to be made and off we go. The other good thing about that sort of scenario is that you've got a um, street address search feature. So you know, for anyone that's in that sort of area of, of, of the rotary game where you need to uh, find a particular address, police or EMS or whatever it may be, it's, uh, it's a pretty cool thing that these, these apps now have that built in, um, such as Oz Runways and whatnot. So that, uh, you, as part of that plan that you've submitted, it's, uh, you're going straight to the four Zs and the Latin long is automatically populated into the flight plan along with your subscription to Oz Runways or similar in case of any, any particular incident or accident. So that's quite cool. I was talking to a um, a Westpac EMS pilot the other day and he was really stoked with the situation that he came across whereby he thought the cloud base would be a lot higher based on the weather of the day and it'd be a VFR flight ended up being cloud down to uh, close to the ground in parts and he was able to use good CRM with the, the co-pilot or crewman at the time to literally just export the plan that they already had in their 
EFB device to NAPES in this case, and then just make the relevant radio call shortly after upgrading to IFR. Now, what they avoided was needing to read out all of the, uh, the, the long list of information that you suddenly need to divulge if you're obviously submitting a flight plan over the radio or a phone, because there was already a flight plan in the system. So that was another, another really cool one. And, and look, the last one I'd like to point out is one that actually saved someone's life, whereby having the subscription to the relevant EFB application included within the remarks of a flight plan. For this particular aircraft, it went missing between Bundaberg and Rockhampton about three years ago. It was a Bell 206 Long Ranger, I think, maybe a Jet Ranger, and uh, had two private pilots on board. They had an engine failure and effectively crashed just in some mangroves just, just off the off the coastline and were there for two long nights with the EMS chopper sort of overflying a number of occasions and just sort of tiger country kind of in those mangroves and the helicopter had crashed just in the water but was submerged. Those guys couldn't be seen. So what ended up happening is that the Australian Maritime Safety Authority contacted Oz Runways and was able to relay the, the uh, I should say, communicate the subscription user ID. Oz Runways were able to go into their, their logging software and find out exactly where that aircraft was and it saved these guys lives because they were able to get a Latin long in their precise position for two nights in mosquito and crocodile infested areas. Last time you, you told that story to me as well, you just wanted to really highlight that not anyone can go and extract that data out of these EFB apps and, and service providers. This is a particular case sort of covered under law just for the, uh, for the Maritime Safety Authority. That's correct, yeah. Just just uh, in the case of an incident, accident or search, that's the only time that that sort of information is, is relayed. And I should also just throw out there that it links in well with InGet's website for a lot of these apps as well, which allows operators and individual pilots to search for a particular user ID and they'll get a full, a full log and KML of that particular flight. If you can then save it, open it up in Google Earth and get a full three-dimensional image of that particular flight path that's probably incriminated and decriminated, uh, de-incriminated people in the past for some of their flying activities as well from from that point of view. But that's that's locked down. That, that's basically stuff that you are publishing as opposed to, you know, if, if I do a flight today and come back, I don't need to worry that someone else is going to, you know, go grab that data publicly off the internet. That's correct, mate, yeah. That is, that's absolutely right. There's passwords and, and all sorts of stuff involved there also. Probably a good place to, to circle back around in terms of, I think you've put a, a couple of goodies there together for, for listeners and did a pretty light touch on the regulations in terms of some of the documents that need to be generated. But uh, yeah, how can you help people out? Part of Airspace Flight Solutions, Nick, which is my consultancy, I, I do a lot of work with, with Oz Runways, obviously. There's a lot of things that I'll, I'll do for commercial organisations, which is sort of designed to help them out to set up their EFP program. So that's whether that's manuals, approved weight and balance, mounting approvals in the case of a supplemental type certificate or an EO, can certainly help with that. In terms of those sorts of things, you know, an EO is generally the solution. I just wanted to touch on that as well. But there are STCs for some mounts as well, especially from Pivot, and Pivot's also got a a long-term removable mount, which is a really good option because it, it doesn't require an EO or an STC. 
that's a good one. Another thing I do, mate, is provide hardware to commercial organisations. So whether that's cases, mounts, charging equipment, storage, and, and training is a big one. So that's probably where my, my background lies, having been a, a grade one instructor for many years now. I, I really enjoy that, that training element. So I deliver on-site webinars and also I've, uh, put out an, an online training course for, for EFB to tick the, the legal requirements for training. And the advantage of that is you can rewatch it and modules are going to be updated for people that purchase and that sort of thing. So finally, mobile device management is an area I've just gone into now. For organisations with anything over probably five to seven devices who really want to manage the operating system and the app versions to a greater extent, along with shutting down things like cameras on devices and stopping end users from increasing the amount of apps and downloading apps. So that's something I can help with also, mate. No dramas. And you had a couple of videos which just go into a little bit more depth or, or cover some of the things we've already spoken about. What's the best way to, to get hold of those ones? Best way would be to go to my website, which is www.airspaceflightsolutions dot com forward slash rotary wing show yeah check them out there's some some videos that explain some of the human factors over temping considerations and also some ios setting suggestions as well really hope that people find those useful and some other potential blog info on the site Cheers, any look back I'll, I'll flick a link to those in the in the blog post for this one as well and we'll put up a, a picture of your smiling mug so people can get a, an idea of what to, what you look like if they don't go get the videos and uh, thanks very much for, for taking us through all that and looking forward to when you drop back in for, for coffee at recluse no worries nick thank you again very much for having me really enjoyed it and yeah looking forward to um to helping out anybody who has any questions feel free just to drop me an email Andy has uploaded a couple of videos that you can access as listeners. There is one over there on EFB overtemp considerations, another on human factors, and a video that walks you through the iOS settings that Andy recommends to get the most out of your EFB setup in the cockpit. You can get those videos by heading over to airspaceflightsolutions.com and looking in the top menu for the Rotary Wing Show tab. Alternatively, I'll link out to Andy's website from the show notes to this episode, episode 90, at rotarywingshow.com. There's a couple of photos of Andy on the blog there too from some of his previous flying gigs. World Helicopter Day is coming around again next month. It falls on the third Sunday in August each year, which means in 2020 that is Sunday the 16th of August. The goal would be, normally, when there isn't a COVID-19 pandemic in full swing, to hold as many helicopter open days and events on the same day to not only celebrate helicopters as the amazing invention that they are and a life-saving tool, but to get people from your local community out to your hangar to talk to aircrew, engineers, and operations staff. This is a chance for us to capture that next generation of people coming through into the helicopter industry. We've had a, a pretty big event here in Brisbane every year so far for World Helicopter Day, but we have cancelled that this year given the situation around COVID-19. And I imagine that's going to be pretty similar for a number of other event organisers who have come to a, a similar conclusion. If you are running a virtual event for World Helicopter Day or some online promotion for it, then do send a message through on worldhelicopterday.com 
so that we can generate some support coverage for you there for your efforts. On an individual level, though, if you're listening to this and you want to get involved, I encourage you to queue up your, your favorite photo from your helicopter career and have it ready to post online next month under the hashtag World Helicopter Day. Again, that's on the third Sunday in August. For me, I've now handed over the, the Chief Flying Instructor or the slash Head of Operations role at Aeropower to Mark McConnell. Hopefully the rate that I've been gaining grey hairs starts to slow down now and I'm looking forward to some of the time that frees up and, and definitely some less paperwork. That's another little cultural difference between Australia and the US. CFI over here is a Chief Flying Instructor where in the US CFI is a Certified Flight Instructor which always makes me wonder if you can be an uncertified flight instructor. Same as in the Army, we had QFI, so qualified flight instructors, as opposed to flight instructors who, I guess, weren't qualified, which wasn't a thing. If you enjoy getting helicopter-related info in your podcast feed, then please consider supporting the show on Patreon via the support tab on the rotarywingshow.com website menu. A big thanks to the following people for their support some of whom have been there right from the very early days of the podcast. It is really very much appreciated. Jeff, Mike, Bill, Jason, Brent, Michael, AJ, Hal, John, Mark, Shannon, Kirillin, Eric, Jake, Chris, Gareth, Heath, Kevin, Tony, Peter, Jason, Michael, Rendell. To close out this episode, just a, a reminder that if you experience any unusual vibrations through the tar rotor pedals, that it might be the only warning you get before a catastrophic failure. In the last week, a Robinson R44 crashed in Broome in Western Australia with two fatalities. The ATSB was pretty quick to come out with an accident update. And I'll just read here from some of the quotes on the article on their website. Based on CCTV footage and examination of the wreckage, ATSB investigators have been able to determine that the helicopter's tail rotor gearbox, tail rotor, and tail assembly separated from the helicopter soon after takeoff. Following the in-flight separation of the tail, the helicopter then fell to the ground out of control. At this stage, the reasons for the in-flight breakup and the significance of the reported vibrations through the tail rotor pedals are not known, and the ATSB will provide further advice when relevant information is available. While the investigation is ongoing, the ATSB urges any R44 pilot that experiences unusual vibrations through the tail rotor pedals to land as soon as possible. So stay vigilant out there, gang. As much fun as flying helicopters is, things can go wrong super quickly.